on this week's show, we're trying to figure out how did this car get parked in this spot? Welcome back to the Seeking Proof Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to remind you of the most important fact in the entire universe. God loves you. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever forget that. You know, we all go through difficult times sometimes, and it's always good to remember at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, at any time, God loves you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in life or what challenges life may be throwing at you, It's never too late. It's never the wrong time to lean into God. He's always there waiting for you. Don't ever hesitate to take that first step once you're ready to seek out a relationship with him. So how did that car get parked where it was? Well, I want to use that as a jumping off point to tell a story of something that happened, my goodness, over 30 years ago now. You see, once upon a time, an ice storm had rolled through my hometown, and there were a group of teenage boys who had gotten together that night who were looking to go out and just have some fun. And as teenage boys often do, they never really let the weather bother them or stand in their way. And after the ice storm had gone through, they still ventured out into that cold and slippery evening. And while they couldn't figure out how to do much else, at some point, they came upon an interesting scientific discovery. You see, if you get half a dozen guys around a very small car, probably of one of their friends, those guys can pick up that car ever so slightly, just enough to get it sliding on a driveway that's now covered in a fresh sheet of ice. And that discovery led to more fun than it probably should have, and a group of cars that found themselves parked sideways and crossways and all other ways across driveways all over my hometown that evening. A quick disclaimer for everyone, do not try things like this at home. It's just not a good idea. And if you ever tell a story like this, make sure that no one in the room is someone's car who might or might not have got turned sideways that evening all those years ago. It could turn out badly for you if you're not careful. Just saying. Now, why are we telling this story? Well, the question that we're going to be facing as we begin this journey is, what are the fingerprints of intelligence? And that's really what we're going to be looking at as we take this path, this this cumulative idea of how did we get from nothing to where we are today. Now, let's say you're a parent and you wake up that next morning and you find your teenager's car slid sideways in the driveway parked up against the garage. What are your different options on the table as you, you have an event that has occurred and you have to figure out what is the most likely explanation for that event? Well, you could go with the simply naturalistic approach and say there is no outside intelligence out there. What happened was the result of time and matter and chance. So the storm that blew in, the wind must have been stronger than we thought, the ice fell and the wind blew so strong that it turned the car sideways and moved it up against the garage. That's, you know, scientifically plausible at a at a very remote level. I suppose you could tell yourself that, but you probably don't really believe that because you know that didn't likely happen. I guess you could also go for the response that my teenager's not a very good driver and they were just really, really thoughtless last night, and that's just how they parked the car. Not sure how they got out of it once they did, but I guess you could go for, well, it couldn't have been anything else because nothing else makes good logical sense, so it must have been my teenager who did that. And again, while teenagers may do a lot of things, they probably don't do that. But intelligence. You see, intelligence leaves behind fingerprints. 
And that's what we're going to be looking for in this journey. Now, in this case, you may question the intelligence of the individuals involved. And when it comes to teenage boys, that's probably correct in this case. But the fingerprint of intelligence is clearly there. And that's going to be the most likely explanation. Now, it seems ridiculous. Why would you look at that and assume that somebody would do that? And there's lots of things that teenage boys do that we all wonder about why. But intelligence is the most logical answer. It's the best answer, even though on the surface it doesn't seem that likely of an answer. And that's where we find ourselves as we begin to take this journey. When we look at the facts that we're going to be presented with, what is the best explanation? We're going to reach these decision points in the process. And as we do, as we look at those decision points, both sides of this argument, creationists and naturalists, are going to be tempted at times when their theory doesn't fully explain things. There is a natural temptation to sneak into it God, whether that's God with a big G for creationists or whether that's God with a little g for naturalists. This argument originated a very long time ago, and the, the thought process behind it is this. If you use God to explain the gaps, this is the God of the gaps theory, that every time I run into a problem, I'm simply going to insert God into the problem to explain what happened. Well, that's a dangerous and not very logical approach because as scientific discovery advances, science may determine that where me as a creationist, if I just stuck God in and said, well, God is clear of the answer. We don't know what happened, but we don't know what happened, so it must have been God. That's a dangerous thing to do because as science discovers new things, science may actually, scientists may actually come up with this. I fell into that trap myself just then. Scientists may actually discover the real answer to this gap that we're looking at. But this is also a very clever double-edged sword in all of this. And the reason I say that is this. Darwin's theory is 160 years old, and it is chock full of more holes than your average block of Swiss cheese. So when you look at Darwin's theory, Darwin's theory has been allowed to sit as settled science for a very long time without ever being answerable to all of the holes in the theory that require explanation. And I am absolutely in agreement that what we shouldn't do is just blindly stick God in there and say, God must have done that. But it doesn't also mean that we shouldn't demand an answer from naturalists as we look at these things. The reality in all of this is that the scientific discoveries, especially of the last hundred years, have begun to point the finger very clearly at the fact that a lot of these question marks that Darwin's theory cannot explain, or a naturalistic theory, and an atheistic theory, that we, the, we all got here through the process of time, matter, and chance, or luck, that there are a great many scientific discoveries that are beginning to point very clearly at the fact that luck alone, that time, matter, and luck could not have accounted for the things that we see around us. And there is a growing temptation on the part of naturalists to insert God with a little g in there. The universe did it. Science will find an answer. Science can account for everything. It's very dangerous when you begin to refer to science in the third person. I just did it myself. You saw me get caught up in that same issue. What we want to avoid on both sides is doing this. So how do we distinguish the fingerprints of intelligence from just random events happening around us? Dr. Stephen Meyer helps us to distinguish what we're looking for. And I love this quote from one of his books. What justifies the elimination of chance 
is not just the occurrence of a highly improbable event, but the occurrence of a very improbable event that also conforms to an independently given or discernible pattern. So when something unusual happens, fine, you find your daughter's car turned sideways up against the garage. Okay, that, that, that's very unusual. But realistically speaking, it's an improbable event that also conforms to an independently given or discernible pattern. There is a pattern there that would signify that this was intelligent beings in action. Intelligence may be questionable, but that they were intelligent agents at work in what occurred. So we begin to discern the difference between chance, random luck events, versus the fingerprint of intelligence. If the car had simply slid a couple of inches one side or the other, you might say, well, okay, I mean, yeah, that makes good sense. If it had been a flood that had gone through and the car moved an enormous distance, you say, well, floodwaters can do that. But an ice storm can't do that, and we all inherently know that. So again, when we look at something, we're looking for what is the difference between chance and intelligence? What is it that gives us the fingerprint of intelligence? Now, Dr. William Dubinsky actually expands on what Dr. Meyer is talking about here. And I want to quote from William Dubinsky in this because he gives us a little bit more to expand on this definition. What is it about these two patterns that indicates the activity of intelligence, whereas other patterns do not? The key concept is that of independence. I define a specification as a match between an event and an independently given pattern. Events that are both highly complex and specified, that is, that match an independently given pattern, indicate design. All right, so we're looking for something that is highly complex and specified, something that's going to indicate design for us. Let me give you an example of, of my children growing up and where this came into play. So my kids, we used to love to take the kids to Disney World when they were little. And if I was in Orlando and we looked up in the sky and there was a cloud floating by and that cloud was kind of circular shaped and maybe a couple of other clouds kind of drifted in front of it and you kind of got two small circles and one great big circle. And my daughters looked up and said, Dad, look, it's Mickey. Okay, I mean, sure, it, it kind of looks a little bit like Mickey Mouse and I, I kind of get what they'd be saying at that point. But it would be wrong for me to look at that and say, clearly that's evidence that the Walt Disney Corporation is messing with the clouds over Orlando, Florida. That would be inserting a Mickey of the Gaps theory into all of this. It's not right. There's lots of explanations for what happened. It was some clouds floating randomly. But if I'm in Orlando and I look up in the sky and I see written in the clouds, come visit Disney World. Okay, you know what? That's pretty specific. That's both complex, it's very specific, and there's no question an intelligent agent was involved in that. So I can clearly I can clearly distinguish between the two. So along our journey, this is going to become critically important at many steps along the way. When we begin at nothing and we end where we are today, and somewhere along the way about over here, we're going to hit Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection. But as we take this journey, along the way, we need to stop and ask ourselves some questions. How did nothing become something? And in fact, become everything. How did we move from this beginning point to here and to this stage and to all of the other things that we're going to see? And as we look at that, we're looking for the fingerprints of intelligence. We're not attempting to insert God into every gap that we see. But as we walk this journey from nothing to where we are today, as we take a comprehensive look at everything that we see around us, we have to ask ourselves the question, 
Where do we see the fingerprint of intelligence? I want to read from Charles Darwin and illustrate this point. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have, have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Okay, then Darwin gets optimistic. But I can find out no such case. Okay, so I think that last part of his quote is probably a lot of optimism on his part, and we're going to talk a lot about that when we get to Darwin. But realistically, looking at his quote, he's describing natural selection here. It is an unguided process. So just left to itself, a living creature is going to simply evolve through numerous successive slight modifications. So generation by generation, left to themselves, creatures improve. They develop new appendages. They develop new skills. They develop all of these things. And when you start to look at Darwin's theory and you start to raise questions about this, along the way, you start to ask the question, well, now wait a minute, at some point, creatures didn't fly, and now they do fly. In the middle, there seems to be this wily coyote gap in the middle where there's going to be a lot of falling off of cliffs and a little poof at the bottom when he hits the canyon floor below. There are legitimate questions along the way that we have to answer. And we have to answer it without resorting to inserting our particular God into the equation. Naturalism has been allowed for the last 160 years to protect the gaps in the theory, the holes in Darwin's theory, by saying you cannot insert God into those gaps. Given enough time, science will find an answer. I want to read to you a couple of quotes to illustrate this point as we're looking at this, because there is a natural tendency to try to expand a little bit and to try to start inserting God with a little g into this from the naturalistic side of this equation. It has been said, again, this is Darwin, it has been said that I speak of natural selection as an act of power or deity. But who objects to an author speaking of the attraction of gravity as ruling the movement of the planets? Again, if you read through Darwin, he absolutely does ascribe godlike powers to natural selection. That's undeniable as you read through the book. Again, here's another quote from uh, The Origin of Species. In living bodies, variation will cause the slight alterations. Generation will multiply them almost infinitely. And natural selection will pick out with unerring skill each improvement. Do you notice how he altered his description there? In living bodies, variation will cause the slight alterations. Okay, fair enough. Generation will multiply them almost infinitely. Okay, so he's describing over time. We have this picture painted for us. How did we get giraffes? Well, over time, you had animals with a little bit longer neck that were able to reach up and eat the leaves off of trees, and they were able to do better than their shorter brethren who didn't have longer necks. And eventually, over time, generation after generation, their necks kept getting longer until we ended up with, we went from kind of a horse-like thing to a giraffe. And we've all had that picture painted for us. And that's what Darwin's kind of getting to. But he turns midway through here. In living bodies, variation will cause the slight alterations. Generations will multiply them almost infinitely. And here comes God with a little g. And natural selection will pick out with unerring skill each improvement. Why? Why isn't it that along the way you have a couple of generations where you have an animal that's starting to go from something that looks like a horse and it gets a little bit longer neck and a little bit longer neck, and then in the next generation, 
because it's an unguided process, it starts to reverse itself. And the next generation, well, its neck gets a little shorter, and because it can no longer reach the leaves, it just dies out. Why isn't that also the case? Natural selection seems to have unerring skill to select each improvement to keep this process going so the giraffe doesn't just die out. Well, in an unguided process, why, isn't that, why is that the case? Again, he's given natural selection the ability to just keep improving things. He's given natural selection a hand to keep things moving forward. How do we go from something who doesn't fly to something who does? Don't worry, natural selection helps it along the way. How? How does it help it along the way? How do you go from fl not flying to flying? It doesn't make any sense. Richard Dawkins, again, love, he, you will never find a greater supporter of Darwin's theory than Richard Dawkins. He absolutely has enormous admiration for him. If you ever read The God Delusion, no question. Richard Dawkins from The God Delusion. Natural selection not only explains the whole of life. That, that's a lot, but okay. It also raises our consciousness to the power of science to explain how organized complexity can emerge from simple beginnings without any deliberate guidance. That is giving natural selection an enormous amount of credit for something that, again, it's an unguided process. It can, it can raise our consciousness to the power of science. We've moved science and natural selection into this, into literally being a being. We're going to see a lot of quotes from Stephen Hawking from a Discovery Channel special that he did a few years ago. As we look at the beginning point of the universe and start walking that forward, Stephen Hawking clearly believes in the power of the universe, and his God, God with a little g, is clearly the universe. But we see science and the universe referred to in an almost godlike fashion. I want to play a clip for you here from a debate between Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Peter Atkins on the question of does God exist? Let's see if you can detect this idea of science in the third person in Dr. Atkins' comments. It seems to me that the challenges for those who propose the more complicated explanation have to present their arguments unless they accept the simpler one. I can propose, I can propose that science can account for everything there is in the world without the invocation of the complexity of a creator and a god. What the, a believer has to do is to demonstrate explicitly that my view about the simplicity, the innate, inherent simplicity of the world is inadequate. It's only by showing that it is an inadequate understanding of the world that I am prepared to accept that there may be room for a God. Do you notice what Dr. Atkins does as he, as he makes that statement? Again, science can explain everything. Really? Everything. That, that is an amazing claim. There's a great many things, no question, that scientists will someday be able to explain. But there are also things, as Dr. Craig goes on to point out, that science absolutely can't explain, nor would we necessarily expect science to. Dr. Atkins' comment, by the way, again, that you'll have this idea of somehow that God is more complex, that God is the more complex answer. We're going to break that down in the episodes to come. But this idea that somehow that God is more complex than looking at every situation that we run into a problem with a naturalistic theory and saying, luck will simply answer that, or give us enough time and eventually we'll come up with an answer no matter how implausible it looks. That's, again, increasing complexity over and over and over again. 
What he's saying is, ignoring the fingerprint of intelligence gives science enough time and science will come up with an alternative answer, an answer that he likes better. Interjecting God into the conversation does not interject complexity into it. It simply recognizes the fingerprint of intelligence where the fingerprint of intelligence is clearly visible, much like on that snowy, cold, icy night all those 30-some-odd years ago. The fingerprint of intelligence is going to be clearly visible. So as we go forward, neither side is going to inject God, whether it's God with a capital G or God with a little g into the gaps. But we're also not going to shirk away from looking at the questions of how did we get here? Darwin does not get a permanent pass on all the holes in his theory. It's been 160 years. The time has come to start asking some questions. Why is it that the tree of life doesn't explain what we find in the fossil record? We need to determine why it is that all life suddenly appears in the fossil record, all life. Most life appears in the fossil record all at once. It doesn't look at all like what you would expect if Darwin's theory was correct. It looks a lot like what you would expect if, oh, I don't know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It looks a lot more like that. We need answers to these questions, and we're not going to ignore them any longer. So as we go forward, we're going to be very careful not to fall into the trap of God of the gaps, but we're also not going to ignore these issues as we do. So be prepared as we take this journey. We're going to be looking at a lot of really interesting scientific facts, and we're going to take our time walking through this. There is a lot of things like the Big Bang Theory or quantum mechanics or things like that that honestly a lot of us just don't spend much time looking at. I think most of us know the word quantum from every Marvel movie that we've seen where they just jam the word quantum in in front of everything to make it sound scientific and interesting. We're going to take a look at what these things actually mean and what their real-world impact is on how we got here today. I want to thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. As always, you can find us on our website at prooftograce.com. You can reach out to us via email at prooftograce at yahoo.com. If you're looking for our podcasts, you've got them here on our YouTube channel, where I would love it if you would hit the like and subscribe button. You can also find pod our podcasts over on Apple iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Bye-bye.